This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I am your host G Sampath. Diplomatic relations between India and Canada have never been this strained. The current spat between the two countries began when Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced in Parliament that there was credible evidence linking the Indian government to the murder of Khalistani separatist leader Hardeep Singh Nijjar. Canadian security agencies have been actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link between agents of the government of India and the killing of a Canadian citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijjar. Now, India, in the latest salvo, has asked Canada to remove 41 of its 62 diplomats from the country. India says that Niger, a Canadian citizen, is a terrorist, a claim that Niger has denied, had denied rather. But Canada, charging another country with killing a Canadian citizen on its territory would be unprecedented. And India has long wanted Canada to crack down on the activities of Khalistani separatists on its soil, something that Canada has not been evidently keen to do. So what are the factors driving the Canadian government's thinking on this issue? Does the Sikh diaspora in Canada wield a disproportionate influence on the Trudeau government? And how does ramping up confrontation with India gel with Canada's foreign policy that seeks an Indo-Pacific pivot. We discuss all these aspects in this episode of In Focus, and we have with us Dr. Sanjay Ruparelia, Jarislavsky Democracy Chair and Associate Professor of Politics at Toronto Metropolitan University. Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time for this. Thank you for having me. Sanjay, to start with, uh, I was just wondering, what's the general public uh, view or public sentiment, the dominant narrative domestically in Canada about this entire diplomatic role? The dominant narrative, certainly in the media, by the government, by opposition parties in Canada, is uh, a sense of shock that, that this happened in Canada. There's a strong... Um, belief amongst many that Prime Minister Trudeau must have had very good reasons to make this statement in the House of Commons. It's symbolically and politically the most uh, significant venue in which he could have made such a set of allegations. If you remember, the, the statement itself initially seemed to be very carefully put, that there were credible allegations, not evidence, credible allegations of a potential link between the killing of Mr. Najir and some agents of the government of India. But of course, in Delhi, as I've seen from afar, reading the papers from here, you know, there was an immediately, of course, a denial that it was absurd and motivated, politically motivated, and a claim that saying, well, if you have evidence, then don't say it's allegations, show us the evidence. So that's what we've seen. Um, there have been some voices in Canada, and we've seen this now play out politically in the last two, three weeks. Even some of the opposition parties, the major newspapers, the editorialists saying, you know, Canada eventually must show evidence for such a grave accusation. Um, but the government so far is saying, well, we have to let the, the police investigation proceed 
uninterrupted without any interference. So that's where we are now. But there's, it's 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 a it's a very serious uh, political moment. Obviously, it's strained relations severely between Ottawa and New Delhi. Uh, they suspended a trade mission that was meant to take place. Were very unsuccessful, protracted negotiations over a decade to have a, a trade agreement with India. And I think we can talk more about this, of course. I know you'll be asking. Yeah, no, I was just wondering, uh, you mentioned this announcement in Parliament, how it evoked a sense of shock. Uh, I was just wondering, was uh, there were some reports which indicate that uh, Trudeau was prompted to make this announcement about allegations of Indian involvement, uh, credible allegations of Indian involvement in this killing in Parliament uh, because of a felt need to get ahead of, get out ahead of the media on this story because apparently CBC and Globe and Mail gave the government 24 hours notice before they were going to go out with this story and he did not want a repeat of what happened with alleged Chinese interference in uh, elections in Canada. So, in this time he thought he should sort of set the tone and that's what probably prompted him because why would you make such a statement if you were not able to produce evidence as well? So, is this uh, something uh, which you agree with, which you think has happened? Yes, no, I think that's exactly right. I think there are two factors involved. Reports here said that very senior intelligence officials, including the national security advisor to the government, met with their counterparts in New Delhi over the summer, presented the evidence they had gathered verbally, but not in any written format, and asked for the cooperation of the Indian government. Uh, as we know, uh, the government did refused and denied the allegation, refused to cooperate. And I think it may have, it's a good counterfactual to ask, it may have remained something that would be pursued privately through diplomatic channels and through senior intelligence officials. But as you say, the Globe and Mail, which is one of the two major papers here, was about to publish the story. The CPC had been working on it. And as you also intimated, the Trudeau government has been really been put on the back foot by looking that it was either complacent or even worse, complicit in Chinese interference in Canadian electoral politics over the last two elections, 2019 and 2021. There is now a public inquiry that has been established looking into that. He could not afford politically to look like he was now also um, basically, you know, asleep on the watch if there was if there was interference by India in Canadian politics, and of course not simply interference, but if the allegation was true that that the government had somehow been involved in the killing. Of, of this Khalistani separatist leader, Mr. Nijar. Right. Now, while, while we sort of uh, keep this involvement, uh, Indian government involvement or not, uh, uh, in this killing to one side for a bit, can you talk a little bit about the Canadian perspective on this entire Khalistan issue? Because this is not a new issue. It's been an irritant in bilateral relations, at least since the 1980s, if not earlier, so I was just curious, like, how do you see this entire uh, irritant or this issue between the two countries evolving over the years? And why do Canadian politicians uh, feel, I mean, apparently feel compelled uh, to humor or at least uh, let go, I mean, let, let it happen, you know, these sick diasporic calls for cessationism in another country? No, it's a very good question. Then the worst terrorist incident in Canadian history, I still think, is the case of the Air India bombing in 1985, which, of course, followed the, of course, many events in India, as we know, 
the assault on the Golden Temple, the assassination of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, the anti-Sikh pogrom that then took place in northern India, particularly in Delhi, and then it came in the wake of that. And then, of course, in India itself, a brutal civil insurgency, which lasted till the early to mid-1990s in the Punjab. My, I grew up here. I remember that Air India bombing very well. I was a young teenager at the time. I was very struck recently. There was a poll uh, by one of the major survey uh, companies here asking Canadians how much they knew about the Air India bombing in 1985. And I was quite, I was quite shocked that you know, a very large majority didn't really know what had happened didn't know that it took a very long time for the police here to book and prosecute anyone, charge anyone. There was only one person eventually um, charged and, and brought to book. So I think, you know, in Canada, there's not much understanding. There are amongst a few who studied it. There's not much understanding about just how traumatic this conflict in India was in the 1980s and 90s. That's one thing that strikes me. The second, of course, though, is that the Sikh population here has a very long history, um, many different facets of Canadian life where they participated, made huge contributions. And of course, I think politically it's important to see that certainly in the last, let's say, beginning in the early 1990s, but certainly in the last, say, decade or more, um, become very influential across party lines. So whether it's the Liberal Party in government today in Ottawa, um, the leader of the NDP, the Social Democratic Party here, Mr. Jagmeet Singh, of course, a Sikh and from the community. Um, even the Conservative Party has uh, prominent Sikh politicians amongst its ranks. And we see it also at the provincial level. Again, across parties uh, and across provinces, whether it's British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario. So, you know, the Sikh community is very actively involved in Canadian politics. As a percentage of the population, uh, you know, it's just under a million, and Canada's population is only around 40 million. Uh, they, play a, they play a very important role, particularly in the parties here, in terms of who gets selected as candidates. Um, very few people actually participate in the election, selection of candidates that parties have in terms of their local elections and what are called ridings here. And so they, they have a sort of outsized political influence in that. And so across the across the party spectrum, they've taken up the sort of cause and, and, uh, and, you know, they, and then you've seen in Canada, there's a tendency, actually not some tendency, but the, the, there's a view to equate support or a campaign for separatism or succession in the Punjab as equivalent to a campaign for Quebec to secede and become an independent country in Canada, right? So they sort of see it in this way, that these are two federal democratic systems. There are going to be provinces or states within them that may have a majority that wish to secede or part of population wants to secede. And that's how they, they think about it in those terms. And I think that's, you know, those are some of the factors that really seem to be at so, play. So this, this equivalence, uh, sorry to interrupt, Sanjay, this equivalence which you mentioned between uh, the kind of secessionist sentiment with regard to uh, Quebec and how it is, uh, you know, compared to the one which the Sikh diaspora, you know, likes to make about Punjab. Is that kind of a equivalence present in the thinking of the Canadian uh, foreign policy circles or domestic uh, uh, 
political parties leadership and so on is that what they also believe is that the reason why the the sikh separatists sort of get a long rope uh, to do what they do that's a very good question i'm not sure because i'm not informed about this i'm not sure to what extent it actually influences the foreign policy establishment in the country it certainly is there in the media i mean i've been struck with conversations i've had with some journalists over the last 2 3 weeks that have made this made this comparison of course i find it quite a poor comparison for two obvious reasons although there was violence associated with the quebec separatist movement in the 1970s it was never of the scale or intensity of the conflict that happened in india over the khalistani movement in the 1980s and 90s i mean a fraction of it of course the second is that this of course is a movement in which the diaspora in canada and britain and others have alleged to play a role right providing financing or funding of a sort of long distance separatist nationalism and again there's no corollary with the quebec case so i think it's a poor comparison but it often gets brought up um in the media mr jagmeet singh of course as leader of the ndp has also brought it up in the past and here's where i think there's something very interesting and important to see the distinction in canada they've handled the quebec uh, separatist movement actually extremely well in one sense to say okay we've had there were two referendums they both failed one extremely narrowly you know by something like 50,000 votes in 1995 but the argument is that in Canada faces with the separatist movement there've been attempts to placate it through constitutional reform which failed number of courts and then there was a plebiscite a referendum in which the people were asked whether they would like to secede or not and of course in India for lots of complicated reasons as we know the indian union of states is remarkably plastic because of the constitution the states have been reconfigured across linguistic cultural boundaries from the 1950s and 60s in a way that i don't think any country in the world has done but that constituent power is with parliament it's never been given in india to my knowledge uh to the people in terms of a plebiscite or referendum so that's a big distinction about how india has handled secessionist movements or demands for greater autonomy uh by states in the union in the 1950s and 60s and since vis-a-vis Canada and that's that's a difference uh constitutionally it's a difference i guess in political culture as well and so i think you know those are some again some of the factors that are at play in this right that's a very interesting point uh, you just made about the distinction between how india has handled uh, uh, demands for greater autonomy by reconfiguring states along linguistic lines and so on whereas in canada there is a more there has been uh, a trend of giving more power to the hands of the people to decide either by plebiscite or referenda and who knows maybe that's a, that's a way uh, which has worked well for canada so far and why it shouldn't work in other places that's a different discussion now coming back to the foreign policy side of this uh, sanjay uh, we i mean i read your very very interesting paper on on canadian foreign policy with regard to you know the indo pacific pivot and uh, you know it's part of the larger uh, geopolitical structure which is sort of oriented towards containing china the whole g7 and so on so in this context uh, where you have uh, india which is one of the main uh, emerging powers which is important to the west for containing uh, containing quote unquote china especially in this region indo pacific region in this context 
how does it make sense for Canada not to take India's demands for keeping six separatist activities on its soil in check? And in the absence of having taken any action on this, where uh, India is saying terrorism, terrorism, and Canada is saying human rights, freedom of expression, so on. Like, how how is this going to be sustainable, either in terms of consistency of its own foreign policy or in any other way? That's another very good question. I, sh- I just want to add one other factor to the previous question before I answer this one, which is, of course, there are very domestic, important domestic roots to the Khalistan movement in India, political, economic, cultural. But of course, we also know by the late 80s and early 1990s that, you know, there there have been many claims that Pakistan was also involved in abetting some of the movement. And again, so there's a third state actor uh, involved in the conflict, which again, doesn't arise in the Quebec case. I just wanted to mention that. But on this question, yes, the new Indo-Pacific strategy that Ottawa unveiled last year described India as a critical partner uh, it saw great opportunities to expand trade, investment, and commercial opportunities uh, to tackle climate change, right, through uh, investment in Canada's sort of critical mineral deposits and and so forth to maybe expand supply chains away from China towards India. So there's a lot of opportunities there that at least were identified. And there was also... A, a great emphasis on shared values of democracy and pluralism that Canada and India have espoused for a long time. So those are sort of the commonalities. I think there are always going to be tensions and conflicts there because, you know, as we know, Canada Canada is a member of the G7, of the OECD. It's a member of NATO. It has a very long history its identity is very much forward in the sort of transatlantic, uh, as a transatlantic self-image, right? It is a settler colony of Britain, uh, and in the 19th century, its fortunes were really much dictated by that, that Britain being the leading power in the world, and in the 20th century, mid-20th century onwards, by the United States. It's a member of the Five Eyes Alliance, uh, including New Zealand and Australia, which, of course, is uh, you know part of the Anglosphere. So I think what is interesting with the Indo-Pacific strategy for Canada is that historically, and, and up to the present, its foreign policy establishment has very much been determined by this deep commitment to a sort of transatlantic set of allies. And the shift to the Indo-Pacific has come quite late. There are lots of people-to-people ties between India and Canada, other parts of Asia, of course. But in terms of its foreign policy priorities, I think it's, it's been sort of slow to wake up to it compared to, for instance, to the United States um, or Britain. And I think this is where, you know, some of the tensions we see is that, that they've, they've taken a view that they want to forge greater ties with India, but then they also expect India to uh, reciprocate or cooperate with Canadian concerns and interests, which are legitimate. That's what states do. And I think the question that you asked, you know, why haven't Ottawa taken these concerns about Khalistani separatists seriously? You're right. They see it largely through the, through the prism of that these are Canadian citizens who have a right to mobilize uh, and to freely express themselves, to assemble, you know, as, as Canadian citizens for this cause. The Canadian government's been very insistent, this Trudeau government. Uh, and previously that they do not advocate 
the disunity of India, uh, of India, uh, the breakup of India, but they protect the right of freedom of expression. So that's their point of view. And as we know, the Indian government has said, and, and, and it's not just the BJP government, but even the opposition parties, that they've had serious concerns of funding and financing and support for a Khalistani movement by the Canadian diaspora. And they wish that the Canadian government would take these claims more seriously. This began in 2016. Um, 2018, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau had a, had a visit, of course, to India, which was proved to be a debacle. And, and so I, you know, I, I understand the, the Indian government's point of view, and just, uh, not just the government's point of view, but many in Indian media, that you're not taking this seriously enough. There's a sort of turning a blind eye to, to some of the concerns here. And so some of the allegations that we know have read, or not just allegations, but things that have happened is Canadian political leaders attending rallies by Khalistanis where previous martyrs are sort of glorified for, for violent actions. Um, we've seen this uh, over the last year or two. There have been a series of incidents of vandalizing Gurdwaras and Mandirs in the greater Toronto area and Vancouver. We saw this summer in Brampton uh, a parade in which the assassination of Indira Gandhi was sort of reenacted, so to speak, in a figurine in which you know she was a sort of a figurine of a bloodstained figurine of a of the former prime minister um, being shot, um, and so that obviously was very provocative. And we've seen protests outside of consulates as well that seem to uh, really increase tension. I suppose there was one final incident that uh, really did upset the Indian High Commission here, which was after the killing of Mr. Niger, there was some protests and there was accusations that the Indian government was off. That's when the accusations began in the summer, in July. And there was, you know, a poster that was created by this group Sikhs for Justice saying, kill India with the images of the Indian High Commissioner and one of his deputies listed and the name listed. And so this was seen by the consulate here and the government in Delhi as extremely provocative. Um, and then jeopardizing potentially the safety of, of its diplomats here. There's a sort of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, the, the, there's, a real, there's a real difference, absolutely, in terms of how people in India see uh, this movement in Canada and some of the risks that it might pose and has, of course, posed historically. And in Canada, very much saying, you know, again, this is the line they keep repeating. We do not advocate the disunity of India. We do not support this officially in any way, but we have to we have to protect the right of citizens here to express themselves freely. And but but then why why do politicians here feel like they need to attend rallies where, you know, former uh Khalistanis, uh and of course the the violence that took place in the nineteen eighties and nineties, why do they have to support events where it seems like all of that has been glorified? That's a question that hasn't really been answered. I'd say one more thing. That's a long answer I know. That, you know, I think just as the Indian government is saying, we need to see the evidence you say that we are involved in this, which we deny. I think there's, there's still more questions and answers about this whole fracas that has blown up. Because I have read here that the Indian government from 2016 and 2018 has also handed over evidence to the Canadian government to investigate potential criminal activities or worse by some members here um, supporting the sort of Khalistani movement. And it's not clear where those investigations went. It's not clear what evidence New Delhi also shared with its counterparts in Ottawa. The situation is still too opaque. And of course, I suppose that's the case with intelligence 
officials making allegations, uh, you know, that they want to protect their methods and sources of intelligence. But I, I think that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing a lot of distrust uh, and that these events have amplified that. Right. Now, Sanjay, you said earlier that uh, this entire uh, reluctance to act on the series of, you know, sort of, let's say, escalatory uh, activities, you know, a series of activities by non-state actors in Canadian, so on Canadian soil who are sort of going up the escalatory or provocative matrix, so to speak. Uh, it's all about protecting the right of citizens to express themselves. And I was just wondering, is it only that? Because the second aspect of what you just detailed was that Canadian politicians were seen attending some of these uh, provocative uh, individuals' events. Now, is this something to do with, say, in the case of the current government, the Trudeau government, an anxiety not to lose the Sikh diasporic vote to uh, the Jagmeet Singh party? Is that a key uh, factor. You know, I think, yes, so that, so that's certainly something that you hear. Uh, again, the percent, you know, the size of the Sikh population in Canada as a whole uh, is roughly 2% of the overall population. As I was saying before, they're politically very significant. And the fact that all parties, you know, court the Sikh vote, but also, of course, the larger Indian diaspora vote means that there is some influence there. The Indian diaspora as a whole now has grown rapidly in the last decade, almost 5% of the Canadian population. And, and it's very politically important. You see members of the Indian diaspora as elected representatives and as party officials across the spectrum. So I think, yeah, there has been a, how should I put it? The, the Liberal Party itself is not going to come to power or not, depending on the Sikh vote, of course, right? The, there are many diaspora communities that it seeks support, and many others who do not, do not belong to the Indian diaspora, or even diaspora of other Asian nations. But it, I suppose it's true that in Canada, at least, like in India as well, you know, there are certain swing, as we say, swing seats, uh, certain constituencies, which are very important. Many of, it's hard to form a government in Ottawa at the federal level unless you have a lot of support from the major metropolitan cities. And it's in the greater Toronto area and Vancouver, for instance, where a lot of these swing constituencies lie. And so it is very important that all of the parties seek to mobilize as much support as they can. And as we know, a lot of the Indian diaspora is concentrated in these major metropolitan areas. So I'm not an expert on Canadian politics, uh, much more on Indian politics. So, there, you know, there's something there's something to it. But I, I would, I think the thing I would caution is when Prime Minister Trudeau made these very explosive allegations now over two weeks ago in Parliament, there was a response. I remember reading the Indian press that he was simply doing this, well, as the Indian government said, that it was motivated, politically motivated, because he had a minority government, he was low on the polls, he needed to court support. I think that was a little far-fetched. I don't think somebody could make such a grave set of accusations simply for those kinds of electoral short-term reasons. But there's something to it, you know, and something to it in the sense that, yes, it is a politically, politically very influential community, influential to all parties, and no party would want to lose the support of the Sikh community. The Sikh community itself, of course, we should underscore is not in not in unity on this, right? There are many within it 
that are opposed to a Khalistani movement, not least uh, one of the most senior politicians from that community a long time ago, Mr. Dosanj, who is a premier of British Columbia and has been an outspoken opponent of the Khalistani movement in Canada. And so it's a complicated, complicated uh, issue. Right. I mean, it's not a, it's not a simple uh, black or white uh, situation here, no doubt. Uh, speaking, I, I know you just mentioned that you are not uh, that much into Canadian domestic politics, but still, I want you to probably take a go at this question, which I wanted to ask you. Now, in India, for sure, uh, everybody agrees that uh, this entire uh, dispute, if you want to call it that, between India and Canada, uh, would, uh, electorally speaking, uh, cannot uh, harm uh, Narendra Modi. It could actually maybe benefit him because a nationalism based on ethnic grievances is something uh, you know his party dines out on. Now, how does this play out with regard to Trudeau? I mean, is there a nationalistic nationalism card where he, that he's playing when he talks about uh, Canadian sovereignty being uh, potentially violated? And is are other parties closing ranks ranks around him with him on this issue because there is a nationalism element involved here as well? Can he play the nationalism card uh, before the elections and benefit from it in any way, or it doesn't work like that in Canada? I mean, he certainly has a very strong political interest in making and 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 being seen to be very strong in protecting Canadian sovereignty. Right? I mean, if the allegation is true, it's a violation of national sovereignty, and he's the prime minister. He has to respond to that. It, is it a nationalistic maneuver? I mean, again, I think it's in the larger context we have to think about, which is simply politically, legally, you know, if the allegation has credibility, then he has to respond, as any state would, as any prime minister would, any president would, in any country. The larger context, I think, is what I was saying, that we have seen now increasing reports of Chinese, what the Canadian government calls Chinese interference, in politics here. There's a variety of ways in which China has alleged to interfere. Disinformation campaigns through social media, um, targeting politicians running for office that are seen to be critical of China, uh, even violating election law here uh, by paying some members of the Chinese community to campaign uh, for certain politicians or against certain politicians, whether it's in provincial elections or mayoral elections or federal elections. And so that's the larger context that this government, it's a minority government, uh, it has um, an agreement with the NDP led by Mr. Jagmeet Singh. It, you know, it has, any government would have feel this pressure. And I think particularly because this government has been seen as to be asleep at the wheel when it comes to Chinese interference, it'd be very, very hard for the Trudeau government to sort of not pursue this investigation to its fullest, not to try to get its allies, the United States, most importantly, to back it publicly as strongly as possible, if it believes the allegation is true that the Indian government was somehow involved. Um, at the same time, the primary concern that this government has had and parties across the spectrum have had here in the last three, four years is the what they perceive to be the growing threat and risk posed by China, so hence this new Indo-Pacific strategy. There are a number of countries listed there that are seen as very important for Canada, Indonesia, South Korea, Japan. But India is critical. It's described as a critical partner. Could you have an Indo-Pacific strategy that is aimed to counter the perceived threats by China 
without having India on board. You really can't. It's an incoherent strategy. So I think, you know, it's a very difficult moment for, of course, not just Indo-Canadian relations, but for Canadian foreign policy in the Indo-Pacific, because it already has an increasingly antagonistic relationship with China. It's now facing this very severe diplomatic crisis with India. If you, are, if you have bad relations with both these countries, two of Asia's giants, it's hard to see what you can do in the Indo-Pacific. Right. I mean, speaking of uh, this difficult moment uh, for Canada in terms of diplomacy in this in this region, I was just wondering, you know, Canadian foreign policy, uh, as you already detailed, has been led by the G7, the Anglo, the Anglophone uh, pole, so to speak, of, of the entire uh, arena at play. And uh, in this case, there is a a kind of a fault line or a or a, or a split potentially between two allies you know on the on the same side uh, between uh, india which is which is being uh, quoted so to speak by the us and uh, canada which is a nato uh, member so in this kind of a situation uh, which way do you think the g7 is going to tilt as the investigation into the killing progresses, because so far the U.S. has not said anything really. Uh, either way, uh, maybe privately the pri- Five Eyes, uh, uh, what is it? Five Eyes Intelligence, yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, that might be, be uh, helping Canada with intelligence and so on. But publicly, nothing forth has been, nothing has been coming forth uh, either on uh, in support of Canada or to say India, you guys, you know, uh, whatever, you know. So which way do you think it's going to go? Is this is this is this entire G seven side of things? So initially, the United States, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, these members of the Five Eyes Security Intelligence Sharing Alliance, expressed deep concern over the Prime Minister's allegations. Um, they did not sign a joint statement condemning India, and so in the first week of the allegations, uh, many sort of saw that there was a gap between Canada and its allies. And what we've seen since then is increasing public support by senior officials of the Biden administration, the Secretary of State, Mr. Anthony Blinken, the National Security Advisor, to say that India should cooperate as much as possible with the Canadian investigation, right? So you can see the U.S. slowly trying to publicly put some pressure I suppose, on New Delhi to show that it is very supportive uh, and concerned by Ottawa's allegations. Of course, this is a very old uh, ally of the United States. You know, Canada-U.S. relations are very deep and, and, and go back you know, centuries. So I think that's what you're seeing. At the same time, it was really striking that in Britain, which also expressed deep concern, there was a real, very clear signal that the attempt to strike a trade deal with India would not be um, would not be suspended, of course, in any way, but not even be affected by this by the set of allegations. You know, the British government said that they do not want to conflate these issues, and I think you probably see a similar posture in Australia. So I think all of these states know that, for economic and geostrategic reasons, they need to have a very strong relationship with India because they're concerned about China. There's a sort of realist. But there's a realist approach to understanding these relations. And I think that's what most think most commentators outside of Canada think will prevail. But at the same time, I think you also see in the Anglosphere, you know, think of the major papers in the United States and Britain and so on. You see from leading commentators the view that 
if the investigation proceeds and it produces very hard, clear evidence that there was some involvement by some aspect of the Indian government, it's hard also to see that that the U.S. in particular wouldn't wouldn't try in some way to say that you know there should be some there should be some accountability that someone or some agency has to be held to account in some way. How that's going to play out, of course, I don't know. It would be very fraught in itself uh, if such an event came to pass. I mean, what would the relations between Washington and New Delhi look like? But of course, as we know, you know these relations are manifold, and 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 thing in Washington is really place a big bet on India. Um, One one point of view to answer your question, which which sort of is very popular in India in some quarters, is that one way it could play out, let's say the investigation uh, proceeds and uh, it reaches a conclusion and there is uh, apparently some uh, involvement which is established by this investigation, then the answer to your question uh, from some people would be Mohammed bin Salman. Yes, I was I was going to say that before I finish. You know, it's exactly that. So, yeah, that's right. There was you know President Biden. I think even when he was campaigning, saying that uh, Saudi Arabia was a pariah, and we have nothing to do with it. And then of course he is fist bumping the leader. You know, a couple of years later because they need Saudi Arabia on side to do, of course, with the growing economic crisis, the price of oil, and the attempt to forge some kind of rapprochement. Of course, just simply. Uh, yeah, between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So, you know, realpolitik prevails in Washington, as we know. Um, if if there's going to be a trade-off between a commitment, uh, you know, a rhetorical commitment or uh, an alleged commitment to democratic principles and and realpolitik, then, of course, we know that historically from the Cold War and since that the United States will do what it considers to be in a strategic national interest. And I suppose that's what might prevail here, too. And I guess that would be a concern amongst many in Canada who feel that if this, you know, that this was a violation of its sovereignty and they feel a bit cast alone at the moment. Um, it's a hard position for Canada to be in. It's not the United States. It's not Britain. It relies on these allies to support it. And uh, I guess that's, that'll be the test, you know, if, if, there, if the investigation proceeds and leads to where Canada says uh, it has credible evidence. A lot will we'll have to wait and see how its most uh, important traditional allies respond. Right. I mean, that is going to be a test uh, for both the allies as well as for uh, Canadian uh, diplomacy. Uh, one last question, Sanjay, before I let you go. Uh, so I was just wondering, uh, India's, we, I was just wondering, you know, to go back to the concerns or the issues we started this conversation with, which is India's concerns about six separatist activities on Canadian soil. Now, we've, we've discussed, you know, what's been the scene under the Trudeau administration. He's supported by the NDP. And there are uh, other concerns about Chinese uh, interference in the elections on which he was caught uh, asleep on the job, as you put it. Now, if, let's say, Trudeau goes in the next election and you have, say, some other, uh, the opposition, the conservatives, if they were to come to power, do you think uh, they will take a different line, either a harder line? Generally, conservatives take a harder line in other countries, but here it could be different. I don't know. Or will it be a softer line towards, with regard to India's concerns over uh, six separatists uh, on Canadian soil? That's a that's a very good question. You know, the last time the Indo-Canadian relations were in a deep freeze was after India tested its nuclear devices in 1998. The then Liberal government 
in Ottawa responded very badly. Of course, there were sanctions were imposed on India, as we know, but Canada was, I believe, one of the very last countries to to withdraw those sanctions against India. And those relations only really began to repair under the change in government in Ottawa, which was a conservative government led by Stephen Harper, uh, actually one of the most conservative governments Canada has seen in many decades. But it took the view that India was too important uh, geopolitically and economically, this was even in the mid-2000s, not to, not to pursue a stronger, better relationship with. And it really did focus on trade and commercial opportunities. So this, this protracted, unsuccessful attempt to strike a new trade deal really began with the Harper administration. And if there is a new government in Ottawa led by Mr. Pierre Polyev, um, I think there are signals that, you know, it's going to also try to, it will try to, uh, it will pursue a different line than the liberal government in the sense that it wants to focus probably more on the sort of trade and commercial opportunities with India. It probably has a tougher line uh, vis-a-vis China. Um, but I think, again, you know, it... Uh, would, would its line be different with regard to uh, this entire Khalistan issue and how it's being handled? Yeah, I think, um, well, you know, members of the government, uh, the members of the government seem to, through various reports that have been issued through ind- you know, independent think tanks, but which are seen to be close to the conservative party, seem to take the Khalistan threat, or at least say that the Khalistan threat is more serious than the liberal government has countenance, so the NDP. And yeah, so you you know, you you think that the conservative government, if there's a conservative party that comes to power, would take this concern more seriously, uh, at least in terms of how the Indian government would perceive it. At the same time, as you say, because of this incident, this particular incident, that there was a Canadian citizen murdered on Canadian soil and the allegation is that the Indian government had a hand in it. If if that, I think a lot of it hinges on this investigation. If that leads to, if that leads to a conclusion that there is that there is credible evidence, it would be very hard even for a conservative government simply to put that you know, to you know just ignore that. And and so I think you know we're we're really in a, in a difficult moment when it comes to Indo-Canadian relations. How. There will be every attempt and effort to, to de-escalate and to try to move ahead in some way. But I don't think even a conservative party can be seen to simply ignore this um, in Canada. I think in that sense, you know, how things work here is quite different from Washington. But it's a good question. I know, you know, I think a lot of it will hinge on the investigation. Right. A lot is riding on this investigation. I mean, we know uh, there is enough evidence that the uh, Canadian administration is not keen at all to escalate things. I mean, they want to de-escalate, uh, yes. sort of go back to normalcy. and uh, But that's not going to be uh, independent of how the investigation turns out. I mean, if it turns out uh, to indicate some involvement, of course, uh, it will be very difficult to are saying regardless of whether Trudeau wins or the Conservatives come. But if it doesn't lead anywhere or if it runs into sand, so to speak, then, of course, with the conservative government, there might be some kind of an easier route to rapprochement. Thank you so much, Sanjay, for talking to us. It was a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed uh, learning from it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Onsi. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, 
Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.